hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I have about 10 minutes or less in this monologue, and I wanted to update you that I was absolutely privileged and honored to testify uh, uh, in the Pennsylvania State Capitol, invited by Senator Doug Mastriano, uh, but assisted by Senator Chris uh, Dush, as well as members of the House of Representatives. We met with them later on. Uh, this was gripping testimony. I was well supported in a team with Steve Kirsch, uh, who's the founder of the Vaccine Safety Research Council, as well as uh, Attorney Tom Rents. But I wanted to play for you just the opening clip. This is Senator Mastriano introducing me, and then we'll get into my prepared comments. Uh, we don't have enough time for all of them on the show, so I provided the link so you can uh, listen to it on a uh, link to Rumble so you can hear the entire testimony. And also take the time to listen to uh, Steve Kirsch, Tom Rents, and then the questions and answers. Very important. It's all on the vaccines, and we get this all out in the open. This is Dr. Peter McCullough. Dr. McCullough, you're a champion. You're a voice uh, for those who want to have medical freedom. And uh, I could not be prouder. Oftentimes when I'm doing business here in the Capitol, I wonder where are the great Americans, the great minds, and um, without hesitation, I'd say you're one of the great Americans of our time. You've uh, faced uh, being shut down in silence, the name-calling and the other garbage uh, during the, sh- the shutdown, during the, the dark days of COVID, and you stood firm. You never compromised. You stay focused on science, and uh, I appreciate your courage. You know, as a retired Army colonel who's fought in many of the nation's wars here, you're one of the men I look to that's going to save our republic. So um, I'm going to hit some points on your biography in case some people don't know who you are, but I'd be surprised if they don't by now. But uh, Dr. McCullough is one of the most published cardiologists in America. So when you have some faceless bureaucrat sitting behind a social media platform and, and, and shutting him down with no medical degree, are you kidding me? Some kid that doesn't like what Dr. McCullough says because it's not in line with the protocols preached by the CDC. He's published over a thousand publications, and he's uh, 660 citations in the National Library of Medicine. And if somebody of this caliber would be shut down by some social media outlet, you've got to be kidding me. I never thought I'd see the time. He's testified before the U.S. Senate, before legislators throughout the United States. Dr. McCullough has been here last year as well, and it was the most viewed uh, discussion in the Senate last year. He's testified, you know, across this nation here and various legislators across the nation. Dr. McCullough has uh, dozens of peer-reviewed publications specific to COVID. He knows what he's talking about. He's trained in it. He's uh, a leader in the field, and yet he was shut down on media, social media platforms. So I thank God for Elon Musk. Huh? It was good to see you back. Uh, he's commented extensively on the medical response of COVID-19 from, from a scientific perspective, real science. He's presented at last year's Medical Freedom Panel here in the Capitol, as I mentioned. And uh, doctor, we're honored to have you. Before I ask you, hand the floor to you, I'd like to welcome Representative uh, Mike Jones. Great to see you. Thank you for joining us. So, uh, doctor, it's an honor to have you back in Pennsylvania, and the floor is yours. 
The SARS-CoV-2 pandemic from the outset has been the largest medical disaster, the largest human disaster now of all time in our country. And the stories that you're hearing represent casualties, analogous to casualties in war. December 10th, 2020, the Pfizer vaccine was emergency use authorized. Prior to COVID, emergency use authorization was only for military means, only for vaccines and other products used in the military. That mechanism was never used for a product to be used publicly. Messenger RNA is an old technology. A paper by Lalani and colleagues in the British Medical Journal characterizes U.S. efforts to develop messenger RNA since 1985. The United States had poured tens of billions of dollars into this technology. Nothing had come out of it. In 2012, DARPA, the research division of the military, announced the ADEPT P3 program, which said that they will use messenger RNA technology to end pandemics in 60 days, pandemics that are military would face. So it has been a U.S. government aspiration to use messenger RNA technology for a very long time. This technology was ready to go on the shelf. Operation Warp Speed just quickly brought it into testing. Three days into the U.S. National Declaration of an Emergency, Stefan Bainzel from Moderna announced that they had a vaccine. Three days into the emergency, and what we learned is Moderna had co-written its patent with the U.S. National Institutes of Health years ahead of time. So there was great planning for the possibility of a SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. In the last 90 days, the U.S. Congress Select uh, Committee for the, Inve- for the Origins of the Coronavirus has revealed that the origin of the virus was the Wuhan Institute of Virology in Wuhan, China. And it was work done by U.S. researchers led at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Ralph Barrick as a senior author, who in 2015 had published papers describing the creation of a chimeric virus, an intentionally human engineered virus. And those papers were published in Nature Communications and the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. In the House investigation, we learned that former NIA director Anthony Fauci and NIH director Francis Collins in January of 2020 held a teleconference with leaders in virology worldwide to create a deception campaign to lead the academic and public communities to believe that the virus arose out of nature. The official U.S. government narrative for three years was that the virus spontaneously rose out of nature in Wuhan, China. And in the last 90 days, through investigation led by the committee led by Representative Comer, uh, uh, assisted by Representative Chip Roy and others, I've had personal communication with Chip Roy on this, Our government agencies have all done an about-face, including the CDC via former Director Redfield, the National Security Administration, the FBI, the Department of Energy. They have all capitulated and have stated that indeed the virus came out of the lab in Wuhan, China, and to make matters worse, those agencies had oversight over what was going on. So I'm going to let you go to Rumble.
uh, I've provided the link in the show notes to listen to the entire proceedings there. Uh, in many ways, I had a chance to really rock the Pennsylvania State Capitol, which is one of the most beautiful Capitol buildings in the United States, much thanks to Senator Doug Mastriano, and I meant it when I said it in my Substack. He is an American hero. He's the real war hero, and he's bringing truth to the people of the great state of Pennsylvania and to Americans and people across the globe. Our special guest this week is is, uh, Andres Pacheco, an author, and we're going to go over digital humanities. So we'll get that on the backside of the McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. Cofix RX is Povidone Iodine nasal spray in a 1.25% solution and a spray bottle that actually actuates the Povidone Iodine into a gentle spray into the nose in order to kill nasal pharyngeal pathogens, the viruses that cause the common cold, paramyxoviruses, other coronaviruses, adenoviruses, as an example. Common bacteria, including uh, pneumococcus, haemophilus, staphylococcus, uh, streptococcus, all those common organisms that cause sinusitis. Uh, Importantly, the uh, product is used with a spray pump up each nostril. Don't hold your head back, just in a neutral position. And there it can be used uh, about three times a day in a 24-hour period when anybody gets sick in the house. And Cofix RX is not far away. So go to cofixrx.com and in the promotional code, uh, put in out loud for a discount. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's a great pleasure to let my audience know I've reeled in Andre Pacheco, who's a PhD scientist who is trained in information science and technology. Uh, we're communicating across the Atlantic. He's in Denmark, and he spent a lot of time on the COVID narrative from an information science perspective. And I've asked him on to help us understand what has he learned and how can we digest uh, what's happened over the last three years uh, in an attempt to move forward. Andre, thank you for coming on the McCullough Report. Thank you very much, Dr. Peter McCullough. It's, it's a great honor to be here. And I really, really thank you from the bottom of my heart because it's incredibly hard to have conversations about COVID. As you know, there's a lot of pressure, there's a lot of censorship, there's a lot of fear. So it's really rare to find someone who is willing to listen. And in that sense, I'm very happy to be here and to help talk to you, to talk to you for some of ideas and bring our listeners into it. Well, terrific. Why don't we start with your background? Can you tell us a little bit about your education and training? Sure. My, I am a PhD in information science from Coimbra University in Portugal, which is where I'm from. And I've also been a researcher in the field for a couple 
years now. I've got uh, more than 40 publications, including some journal, including some articles in peer-reviewed international journals. I've also have uh, three books, the latest of which is about information narratives during COVID, and which is the reason that brings us here to talk about. And what what piqued your interest in COVID as a topic for someone who's you know working in the field of information sciences? Well, COVID has been an unavoidable topic in our society, and I started to pay more attention to it when I when I came across actually a conversation by Dr. Pierre Corey, which you certainly know, is one of the most active doctors involved in the early therapeutics of COVID. And at the time, he opened my, my eyes to the possibility that there were alternative therapeutics that were not exclusively trained within the context of a vaccine, which is what we were always told early on the pandemic. And listening to this, listening that maybe what we were being told by the politicians, by the authorities, was not entirely complete, was not a complete representation. I started to research, to my own research. Uh, also, uh, there was a lot of fear, there is to a great extent, a lot of insecurity, both in my family. And I wanted to, especially to just help me understand the situation and help others around me understand it. So I just started to gather some notes and uh, you know, you pull, you have a ball of thread, you pull one and you just unroll it all. So eventually my notes became a book. Wow. And what was your methodology? The methodology is basically the scientific methodology, which is something that has been quite absent from the public discourse. Where, for example, we, since the very early days of the pandemic, the this, this approach of the authorities has been, okay, we have a pandemic, we need vaccines, and our goal is to see how can we distribute the vaccines the most efficiently efficiently possible. So in other words, they start with the conclusion, which is we need vaccines and we need to get them fast to the people. And then everything came after that conclusion has already been established. And this is not a scientific method. So I tried to employ my training as a, as a researcher because I was just out of my PhD when I started writing the book. It was actually, I was starting to write it actually during the PhD, PhD and my thesis was about uh, a very, very profound literature review with a very sound methodology. So I, it was a, kind of the same thing I was doing. So, so I started... Really, so really, with all the rigor of a PhD, you assess the field. What's the title of the book? The title of the book is Red Pills, How COVID Twisted Logic, Ethics and Science. Actually, it should, should be published by now, but unfortunately, there have been some delays. So it should be published by the end of June. And my approach is by starting to open the, to ask the questions first from a first principles approach, which is not starting with the conclusion, but defining the methodology. So for example, instead of asking how can we distribute vaccines most efficiently possible, a most sound question is, okay, we have this new disease, how can we minimize the impact of this disease on the population? And then this opens up the panorama and you have several ways to analyze it. Okay, okay, there's a disease, there's sick people and there's people that are not sick. The ones that are, for the ones that are sick, as you know, as a doctor, you, okay, let's find out what is the treatment that is the most efficient, the safe and the cheapest. And then you can have, okay, multiple answers. Okay, you can have vaccines, you can have antivirals, including ivermectin, hydrochloroquine, you can have monoclonal antibodies. Okay, and then there's people that are sick. So for those, how can we re reduce the chance of sickness and 
then you also have multiple approaches. You can boost the immune system, and you and in turn, you can boost the immune system by incentivizing people to exercise, by incentivizing them to be on par with their vitamins, which includes going outdoors to get some sun. Uh, you can then you ask, okay, for also how can we also reduce the chance of sickness? One way is to understand the transmission mechanisms. And one of the transmission mechanisms that we saw that was very prevalent was that it was transmitted through indoor contamination. So, okay, people, it's about the spaces indoors, so how can we reduce it indoors? And you have answers like improving ventilation uh, and uh, opening windows or installing air conditioners, or for example, by extension, if the transmission happens indoors, then outdoors is okay. So if outdoors is okay, then it's probably no need for masks outdoors. And if transmission also happens from sick patient to sick patients, as you as you clarified early on, then you can, it makes no sense to have health passports to people that are healthy and passports or, or, or masks. So this is just the approach. And as you see, if you just ask the questions first and then you can open up the answers. And this is a pattern of uh, thought the, the scientific approach that they have not seen by health authorities or politicians that raised my suspicions. So what you're saying is the governments just never ask the right questions to get the answers. For example, a person sick with COVID-19, what are the treatments that help avoid hospitalization and death? The governments never asked that question. Did you? Was that your experience over in the EU? Yes, in the EU is pretty much the same because maybe you don't have this perception, but largely what was defined in the United States was kind of imported to the EU because chiefly of trust. There was trust that the, UE, the US government was a close to the pharmaceuticals, so the, it was in the first line of action. So if the US government did something, then there was the trust that it was probably correct and the EU countries also adopted the same policies. But as so, we know, we didn't, so we didn't really have any independent thinking. It sounds like there was this follow the US type of mentality. And in the setting of a pandemic, we don't need people following each other. We actually need independent uh, analysis. Yes. Coming up with, with new ideas. So, uh, I think you're right. I can't think of a single new treatment that was used in Europe that preceded its use, preceded use in the United States. In fact, it was just the opposite. Um, so this idea of treating sick patients, the question, did you see rapid uptake as we went through the, the antivirals and the other drugs? What did you see going on in Europe? The, there was the same atmosphere of suspicion, censorship, hiding alternatives, because as we your listeners probably know, because I trust that you've been explaining them to, as part of your report, as part of your podcast, much better than I could explain, the playbook has been the same and the intention has been the same. So there was a uniform opinion or narrative in the media to conceal the alternative treatment. So. Here, here the, the the hydrochloroquine was still discarded. Ivermectin was still seen as the dewormer because the, the new channels are the same; they are global. 
the narratives pushed are global and good physicians like you were also having to be afraid of prescribing this. They had to do it under the table, under the risk of losing their licenses. And on this note, I was wondering, did the situation there in the US at least regarding Avermectin and hydrochloroquine change? Or it's still seen as something that is worthless, useless, not appropriate? Well, how about the use of Paxlovid and Molnupiravir if hydroxy and ivermectin aren't favored? Are they viewed differently? I have no idea. I never heard of those. And those I don't know a single person that was treated with something. With something. Uh, because the approach by doctors has been you get a vaccine or you go home and recover alone. And I think this has been... Uh, a very unethical approach. I don't know how you do, you're the med a doctor, but I don't see that it's a correct approach from a doc doctor to not try their best to treat the patients and to wash their hands. Uh, Andre, were you uh, aware of any patients who received monoclonal antibodies in your social circles? No, no, none. And as I said, no. there, was, there was an atmosphere of fear and suspicion and the, I'm the only person that I know in my circles that tried to even consider the alternative. Everyone else is in this aura of there's a vaccine or there's nothing else. And there's not even a chance, which saddens me because I see many people who are sick at home and there are potentially treatments that may help and the doctors do not even try to, to approach them. And you mentioned the same playbook how is it possible that the United States and EU could, ha could have the same playbook? How is that even possible? The first idea that comes to mind is that the new channels are owned by the same institutions or the same corporate institutions. So there's CNN in Portugal also, for example. So the, in principle, their narrative is aligned. Additionally, there is the issue of uh, trust, which should not be an issue, but uh, we have seen how it becomes an issue because most people don't really investigate. Most uh, you, you heard a common theme has been to trust the science. Politicians have said it, health officials have said it, trust the science. But what happens, and what I'm most very confident about, is that almost no one reads scientific papers, especially scientific papers about COVID. They just uh, parrot or replicate what others have told them. So what actually happens in practice is that we don't have a situation of trust the science. We have a situation of trust to say what the science is. And that applies both at the individual level and also at the collective level. Because we know now that the trial data of Pfizer, for example, that the, the studies of the CDC about masks, lockdowns, they are profoundly flawed. Methodologically flawed, and if they are flawed, and if they were used to propose a policy, then there's still an evidence vacuum whenever it is applied, whether it is in Europe, in the US. So that evidence vacuum is there. And then you can ask, okay, why is that evidence vacuum not filled by the other uh, countries, by the other regions of the world? And that is a million-dollar question. We've never tried to answer that. So we still have this absence of data, this absence of evidence. And in the absence of evidence, as Vinay Prasad, another doctor who's very well said, politics and ideology fill in that vacuum. 
Now in Europe, from Portugal to Spain, France, Scandinavia, any inter-country differences that you could look to, to? Was there one country that did better with COVID than another? Maybe some marginal differences, but in the grand scheme of things, not really. Some countries abandoned the pandemic earlier than others, like Denmark, where I am now. I think it was the first European country to do so. But other than that, the playbook has been pretty much the, the same. So in Denmark right now, is there any vaccines being administered? I don't think so. Uh, I'm not uh, in part. I don't see anyone talk about that. Uh, probably one thing that was also common sight there in the US that was here was during the first two years of the pandemic, there were many improvised, improvised tents for vaccine administration to a point that, for example, in Portugal, we had these big uh, stadiums and avenues that were converted into vaccine centers. So the government put out the mandate, whether it was everyone should get vaccinated, regardless of age, condition, previous infection, everyone can go. There's these centers that are open and you can get your shot. And this was valid for the first, for the second, and then eventually for the third and so on. And this makes me wonder about um, informed consent and about uh, just the presence of a doctor to walk through a patient on the circumstance. So I was wondering, and I would like to talk to you about this, like how do you feel as a doctor to see a government sur surpass this medical counseling and just prescribe or mandate a treatment for the whole population in an indiscriminate manner? It violates two major codes of medical ethics. The first is the Helsinki Agreement, which basically said that people must receive informed consent. So anytime a product is presented, it must be presented in fair balance. So as soon as we know people could die with the vaccines or suffer heart damage, blood clots, brain damage, immunologic syndromes, uh, we should have fully had that uh, presented to each and every patient. When the theoretical benefits were lost as the vaccine uh, basically didn't keep up with the mutations of the virus, that should have been explained to patients. And the second, uh, principle that was violated was the Nuremberg Code. And you should know this over in, in, in the EU, the Nuremberg trials brought out this principle that when an experimental product is used, no one can receive any pressure, coercion, or threat of reprisal. So the Declaration of Helsinki and the Nuremberg Code were violated. Do people in the EU fully understand that? I don't think so. I think one of the most effective tools at disarming these legal and these ethical codes was fear. And the use of fear has been thoroughly explored by Laura Dodsworth, a UK journalist in her book, A State of Fear. And what makes, and one of the findings that she came with was that the British government engineered fear and maximized fear in the population to increase compliance to the government policies. But this is something to think about. This is not something light. It's the idea that governments and the proof, because it's been documented, it's been interviewed, they have admitted to it, has been exacerbating fear to increase the behavior. And this is very, very serious and completely unethical, I would argue. And the the worrying thing about fear is that fear 
clouds judgment and fear is a very strong primitive emotion so it's incredibly impactful and when people are afraid you don't think straight and sometimes these aspects are overlooked as is for example overlooked the fact of informed consent we don't really have informed consent in the medical in this case in the covid vaccines because for informed consent you need information and there was not adequate information about the trials you knew very well that for example the trial data was not published and when there was a freedom of information act requesting that publishing pfizer tried to delay it for 55 years until the court order is to be done in three months and it's still being being published i guess do you think um from a you know from a just a general ethical perspective do you think the fact that it's a covid 19 coronavirus emergency do you think that ever justifies basically skipping informed consent in the Nuremberg Code? Do, do they become disposable when of, there's an emergency? Of course not. And I think that's the, the basic argument of the the group of people that and the generations that drafted these codes, which is they realized that the best barrier against tyranny, against abuse, against totalitarian regime is the body. So the way to prevent it is to disable it, is to encode it in law. So the moment the governments have the possibility to bypass this, then it's game over because you lose control. So there is never any justification for that, the same way that there is never any justification for censorship. So, what so, so the emergency context, that's a very important point. So emergencies, whether they be war or natural emergencies, or in this case, a medical emergency, uh, they should never override principles of, of ethics, certainly medical ethics. They shouldn't override civil liberties, like free speech. Of course not. Of course not. And um, one important thing about free speech that I actually wanted to mention is what this book that I've written is not. Because I've seen many people throughout these years of the pandemic come out with a lot of certainty and it's really important to stress this out to everyone which is one of the most important findings that my, i made that uh, my book does not intend to be a statement of fact it doesn't mean mean to be a conclusive uh, set of information that will like close a debate and say okay it's this it's not i know little and it's important to acknowledge that our understanding of the situation is never complete. So it's in the process of dialogue that the truth is merged. And this is an idea that I got from Jordan Peterson, because truth is not a sect of facts, but truth is the process of dialogue. So my book and the set of information that I want to put forward is simply to stimulate dialogue and to have discussion. Because even if it were wrong, if you know, if everything were was wrong, it serves a point in uh, creating that dialogue. And if there is no dialogue, then there is no understanding of what is the truth. Because the truth is constructed when the, the good ideas, they clash against the bad ideas. And we as a collective, we lay out or bury the bad ones and try to reach an understanding of what is good and that understanding is never complete because what is truth evolves over time and when you have censorship in the question censorship cuts the debate because it prevents one side from participating in the, in the discourse so if in any case where there is censorship there is no intention of constructing the truth 
it's a falsification. That's why it's propaganda. That's why it's also very important to never accept social censorship in any situation. The same way that ethics should never be broken, because the moment they are broken is the moment that we start the downward trend towards the worst cases of our history. Do you find it? Do you find it uh, of interest that every single EU leader? In virtually every worldwide leader, virtually every religion, you know, everyone became in lockstep with this. Isn't the, the worldwide totality of what we've been talking about it, isn't that in, impressive? It is impressive as much as it is insane. And I worry for what comes next. And I wonder for the accountability of what we had. For example, we also had some people coming on television, some doctors calling for the non-treatment of people that were unvaccinated because early on there was this narrative promoted by Joe Biden himself, so like another top-level statement that people trust and rely on. So if Joe Biden, the president of the great US, says this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated, then that is a starting point. People start with that notion and then it's harder to demystify it and it's harder to explain it. So if someone says this and others come forward and, and start to dehumanize the unvaccinated and hostilize them, which we've seen across through the whole worst episodes of Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, when this, this dehumanization happens, you also break the code of ethics because certain countries start to not want to treat them. They start to ask for unvaccinated to pay COVID expenses as in Singapore or as in Greece they started to tax the elderly that were not vaccinated. So this again brings the ethics. And as a doctor, how do you feel about these kind of statements that a certain patient should not be treated because of the free decision that they made? It's astounding. You know, this assumption that the vaccines were healthy, that they were safe and they're effective is built into this, that taking a vaccine is good, not taking a vaccine is bad. As it turns out, it, th those who didn't take the vaccine, they're free of blood clots and myocarditis and neurologic damage. And, you know, uh, you know, those who didn't take the vaccine are looking great in all the analyses. Those that took the vaccine are the ones who are, you know, creating all the health care costs and, you know, on the rolls of uh, life insurance companies now. So it's just the opposite. The vaccinated are the ones that are increasing the burden of disease and cost and unvaccinated are not. Yes. So, so even that type of setup, but even if it went the other way, uh, one's free choice ought to reign supreme. And, you know, you can decide to wear a seatbelt or not when you go driving. You can decide to drink alcohol or not. You know, there's always a series of decisions, just like there's a decision on a medicine or a vaccine that's administered. Now, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the European perspective. How long were children out of school, let's say in Portugal or Denmark, the countries you were tracking? Um, in Denmark, I've only been here for half a year, so I cannot say over time, but in Portugal, memory, if memory serves me right, because the pandemic years were very fuzzy and distant, but they were out for many months. I didn't have any kids in school, but again, at least a couple months and probably during 2020. I cannot specify which, and I don't want to talk out of my knowledge. 
and probably in 2021 also a few months like sporadically and again there is as a, an outsider i and someone who is not a medical expert someone who just follows what other people say and in that sense i i put together one of the most comprehensive meta kind of meta analysis of these several narratives which is very valuable in itself Same are way. you are you aware of any newspaper or you know online journal that before the vaccines were released are you aware of any op-ed or any editorial that questioned whether the vaccines would work or question their safety i'm not aware of because again there was a lot of social pressure as they in the us exactly the same about not speaking up because if people will speak up and even suggest that uh, vaccines are not the only form of treatment, that masks might not work for everyone of every age, that the sick people might not, that he uh, sorry, that healthy people may not transmit uh, COVID. It was in instantly labeled as a conspiracy theory, nut job, crackhead. So there was no willingness to debate. And if there is no willingness to debate, then there is no finding the truth. That's one of the reasons why I'm so helpful or so thankful what, that you are here to talk to me. But what made people so confident in Europe that not a single voice would be raised to say that the vaccines may not work? And it turned out the vaccines didn't work. Uh, you know, not a single voice raised saying the vaccines weren't going to be safe. And it turns out they're not safe. But not a single voice in anything you can think of across Europe where that was raised before the vaccines were released? I would not say not a single voice, because that will be to undermine the work of certain doctors that were doing things sort of underground, but let's say not national-wide or European-wide voice. That will be like a smoking gun. Uh, well, yeah, I, tell you, I, I was one of the few, I guess, I published an op-ed in The Hill, a widely read Washington Journal, it's still on their website today, and that was in August of 2020, and the title of it was The Great Gamble of the COVID-19 Vaccine Development Program. And it sounds like there wasn't a similar op-ed written in a prominent journal over in, in the EU ahead of time. And it, it's interesting, that's before the vaccines came out, we knew that they were new. We knew that it was a novel illness. And not a single person outside of me, you're talking to them, questioned it publicly, uh, you know, on a, on a broad platform. I, I just find that fascinating. It's not fascinating. It's the product of an environment of question and threat. And, okay, you, there's two ways of analyzing, which is if there is an environment of coercion and censorship, around something that is arguably meant to be scientific, which is follow the science, because they did. The, the science on the vaccines is clear. The moment you have censorship, it's a major red flag that what they are trying to push is not a scientific perspective, because scientific perspective is built on disagreement. So if disagreement is not allowed, then it's probably closer to politics or ideology. And the second aspect is the extreme coercion that was in people not to speak and you are very aware of that you were one of the recipients of that uh, cancellation culture you were discredited you were your career was jeopardized 
the same as the a doctor, the friend of yours, John Littell, was also lost losing his credibility because he just spoke up against it and he spoke his mind. So it's that environment. It's when and when people's livelihoods is are pressured, then it's very hard for them to come forward. What what roles do you think in Europe did the mainstream media play and social media and the independent media play in terms of this whole information narrative? The roles are multiple. I I must admit that I do not watch mainstream media. I try to avoid media in general because I know that the job of media is not to inform people. The job of media is to generate money and they generate money by appealing to extreme emotions and one of this is very clear by a book that was published by ryan holiday na named confessions of a media manipulator and it just showed how the business of media was just to to get your attention and to maximize so i'm always very skeptical of mainstream media in terms of independent media i'm not very aware of and most of my research for the book was made for publications worldwide so I think that mainstream media has, uh, has had a very particular role at enhancing fear, at promoting a monolithic narrative. For example, that monolithic narrative has been as the vaccine as the only way out of the pandemic. This was echoed by many top-level officials. The narrative that we must lock down, that we must distance, the narrative of showing constantly and exclusively death charts in the news every single day. It just feeds into the, the fear mechanism that was used by the British government and that was exported throughout the world as well. And how about how about social media? Social media is more of the same because the social media is also driven by engagement, driven by clicks and is, as we know, not independent and is, as we know, a place fertile with censorship. And there are many abundant examples of censorship in social media, from YouTube removing videos that uh, defy uh, the, whatever is the narrative pushed by WHO, uh, YouTube removing videos that mention Evermectin early on in the pandemic, also by Twitter, deplatforming people that simply state, and one of the case, that state uh, CDC government data, and one of the cases was Alex Berenson. His book was also removed from, from in this case, from Amazon. It was because he was not in conformance with Amazon's guidelines, even though the book was exclusively about official data. So it's, it's uh, the same pattern everywhere. This is a global effect. It's not about the continent itself. I don't think it's local. Well, in the last few minutes, I want to get your perspective on it without biasing uh, you at all. What do you think is the power structure for having such a comprehensive information narrative driving the actions that we've seen? Who do you think is behind it and what are their motives? Oh, that's a, a rabbit hole. <laughs> You're dragging me into it. Uh, it's uh, speculative, I would say, because there is no way of saying for sure. And the mechanism is is the media, for sure. Uh, social media is global. Many people are 
obtain their information through it. And one thing that I draw from my own field from the information is that I work with metadata and metadata are forms of representing concepts in the world. And one important thing about representations that we need to know is that they are simplifications of reality. They are a means of making something complex into something more simple that we can manage. So, and when there is a representation in this process of simplification, some aspects of the object are put in the model and some are left out. And this means that there is a choice of what to include, of what to represent. And if there is a choice, there is a bias. And if there is a bias, there should be asked questions of who, who chooses it, who does it, what's their reasoning, what's their goals. And so we never know the full story about anything. We just know snippets of information. And what has happened is that both social media, both mainstream media, they have been giving us, and I say us, the whole world, because again, these platforms, they are controlled by by the same people, by billionaires, by people with ties to the World Economic Forum. And they are just creating these mirrors of reality. And okay, there's there could be many motivations. The motivation is the old age intention of amassing control and amassing power. Because if you have a compliant society, they are more open to implementing certain measures. And I feel that society today in 2023 it's much more compliant and receptive to lockdowns, to masking, to health mandates than it was back in 2019. And that's something that makes me afraid that the liberties that we have conquered over the years are very quickly disappearing. And one another aspect that worries me is that there is really no, no accountability. For example, in the case of the doctors that were not uh, treating the patients, in the case of doctors that forfeited their responsibility as a doctor, that they were not critical thinkers, that did not try to find the best treatment possible. Do you think that they will face any consequence? As professionals, as people who ignore their ethics of conduct, including also maybe politicians that push these policies into the nation without a now? It's been catastrophic. Now, who do we turn to? It's true. I mean, these are some of the great questions of our time. We've been talking to Andre Pacheco. I should call him Dr. Pacheco. He's at the Science from Denmark. And we're listening to the McCullough Report. We're going to take a break for uh, our sponsors, and we'll be back on. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow that said, lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing, leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. One of the biggest advances in nutraceuticals and supplements is healthy cell. And the healthy cell line is extensive. 
I typically focus on the microgel technology. Three major products here, Immune Super Boost, the Focus and Recall, and then the REM Sleep Supplement. Each one of these is complementary and they can uh, have a role, I think, in the health of your life each and every day. I know they do in my case. Many of you know, after COVID-19 twice, I spent almost the entire year in 2022 with the upper respiratory tract illness. Now, thankfully, and I've been diligent with the immune super boost in the morning, followed by focus and energy, and then in the evening time, the REM sleep supplement. The microgel technology works, and boy, does it work fast. So go to our website, America Out Loud Talk Radio, find the banner bar for Healthy Cell, click on it, and that'll take you to the site to get a discount on your purchase of all healthy cell products. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe, air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Let's get real. Let's get loud at America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. We are having a great conversation with Andre Pacheco, who's Portuguese. He has a degree in information science. He's in Denmark, and he's just completed a book dealing with the red pilling effect of what happened to the COVID-19 pandemic. I think he's made a terrific case of the strong motivational driver of fear. The over, basically the overriding of basic, basic principles of ethics. And then really how things have marched down to erasing civil liberties. Are there examples in the EU uh, where civil liberties were stripped away from people? More than what you have discussed, uh, I don't. Need, I don't think we even need to go into depth. I think that's just uh, the things we've talked about: the freedom of free speech, the freedom of movement by preventing them to attend to circulate in public transport, the freedom of work by mandating a vaccine that was experimental at the time, which is another ethical problem, which is the mandating of an experimental treatment, and this is. There's a lot to say about this. Just these, I think they are serious enough to merit a serious debate and a profound conversation on the accountability of the people that pushed for these policies without data. Do you think do you think freedom of speech alone is big enough? Well, what if everybody can still work and 
there were no mandates for vaccines and everybody could travel just the way they wanted to and they could not wear a mask. Do you think just the freedom of speech alone, restriction of freedom of speech, do you think that was a big enough violation to really make a stand? Yes, absolutely. One thing that we must learn from history is that big changes and maybe catastrophes of history do not happen overnight. They are more of the accumulation of slow negative effects. So, for example, the Nazi Germany, the concentration camps, they just were not built overnight. And some of the greatest commentators of the 21st century, where we saw this bloody atrocity that killed so many millions of people, including, again, the concentration camps, Mao, China, the Soviet Union, they were consensual in agreeing that the root cause of evil was the degeneration of the individual. So when individuals comply to something that is wrong, then that effect trickles down into society at some point. So you, you may ask, is it just the free speech? Is it enough? Yes, it is enough, because today it is just the free speech. Today, it is just the inability to talk about COVID. Today, it is just allowing these governments and corporations to implement structures to monitor us. Today, it is just for the war on terror. Today, it is just about increasing safety. But what is important to know is how these systems will be evolved into tomorrow, how how we little by little we give our liberties and little by little they start to monitor more until it comes to a point where they have a chokehold on us. And one of those chokeholds, for example, is the full digital identification. And it has happened there in the US in Utah. They released a, a passport or a digital passport that was meant to be only for the license, so a digital driving license. But over time, there were updates. And now it's not a digital license only. It's also your vaccination status, for example. And so it's a slow accrual. And that's why we must stand no right away. And that's why these codes of ethics, they were so clear that these, these events that they documented must never be allowed to happen. Because if they are tolerated even once, then that's the beginning of the end. I want to ask you one kind of final question, Stan. In the United States, it seems like the COVID narrative is pretty much Fox News a tremendous number of times in the evening news. I haven't been on in months. And we've seen a near complete replacement of COVID with the transsexual, transgender narrative. And all we see morning, noon, and night is, uh, in the United States, it's called going woke. But yes. it's a new way of thinking where uh, a man isn't really a man, a woman isn't a woman. There's gender fluidity, uh, hypersexualization. I mean, we are seeing it everywhere. Is it happening in Europe as well? Yes, again, because these channels are global. The Twitter is global, Facebook is global. Uh, the the news channels or the the cable news are global because it's the same companies, and this plays into a phenomenon that is much wider than. It's unfortunate that you asked me as the last question or that we have so little time because there's so much to talk about this. There's, it's such a complex topic. And what one of the conclusions I end up with is that there must always be an enemy. So that the, the thing is, if you frame COVID not as a disease, but as an attempt to increase control, as an attempt to probably keep society distracted 
while there are powers moving in the backstage, and these powers can be, for example, financial powers. We have seen the inequality gap increase. We have seen Wall Street buying up property. We have seen severely catastrophic problems with the financial system that are being unresolved since the 28, 28 crisis. The inflation, the instability of the supply chains, the the insecurity that is in the world and just this profound, profound economic crisis. And the thing is, while society is distracted with all these cultural shocks, this Chris Matterson calls from the big prosperity show, they are not discussing the, the politicians, their lack of ethics, they're not holding them accountable. They are brushing COVID aside as something of the past and not explaining, okay, bring, explain to us come forward and say, why did you decide this? And what are the consequences for deciding that? What they decide, for example, the mandates, the lockdowns, the masking, the suppression of free speech, the censorship, the suppression of civil liberties. So it's a way to, I think, I think it's not complete and I don't know everything, but I think it's a way to keep us engaged in this hamster wheel, distracted from more systemic problems. Yeah, that's, of fear and confusion right now, one narrative into another narrative, and information clearly plays a big role. I think you've given us some great insights on uh, information, information science, and our audience is going to be really um, motivated to pick up a copy of your book. So can you tell us a little bit more about the title of your book, and when will it be out? When can our listeners uh, get a copy of it? I strongly encourage. It's a it's a really really incredibly cited book. It's not it doesn't have statements out of the blue. So I encourage everyone to get a copy. the The title is Red Pilled: How COVID Twisted Logic, Ethics, and Science. It should be available by the end of June. So after that, feel free free to get a copy. I'm sure you will not regret. And again, this is meant to be a starting point for the discussion. So uh, most of all, keep a critical mind ask the questions don't be afraid to speak up even no ma no matter how small it seems no matter how insignificant it may seem every action matters wow this has been great uh andre pacheco thank you so much for joining us on the mccullough report thank you very much for having me it's an honor let's get real let's get loud on america loud talk radio this is the mccullough report